Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 4. As we continue our study in this grand and glorious gospel book, we come to chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. Hear God's word. Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him again to help us to study his word. Lord, as we come and we study the pages of your scriptures that you have breathed out, we pray that your spirit would enable us to have ready minds, willing minds, to hear, to accept, to believe this truth, to live our lives according to it. Oh Lord, would you grant the gift of faith? Would you help us, O oh Lord, to believe? And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us. We thank you, Father, for what you have done for us. We thank you, Spirit, for what you have done for us. And we ask that you, the triune God, might be glorified even now as we study your word together. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Amen. The past is never dead. It's not even past. Those words were written by William Faulkner in his 1951 novel, Requiem for a Nun. I've never read that book, so I don't know the exact context in which those words were spoken. But taken by themselves, the meaning is pretty clear, isn't it? What happened in the past doesn't just affect the past. It continues to impact the present. It has bearing on even the future. The past is always with us to some degree. It lives on in our relationships, in our experiences, uh, in our institutions, in our thinking, in our choices. Now compare Faulkner's statement with that of Henry Ford, that infamous little saying, history is bunk. That is, history is meaningless. It's pointless. It, It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with us. So you this morning, how do you think about the past? How do you think about history. Are you with Faulkner or are you with Ford? Now, it's 
very clear in the pages of Scripture. There is no doubt what Paul would have thought about the relation of the past to the present, particularly uh, the relationship of the past as it is recorded in the pages of God's Word. Christianity is a historical religion based upon historical events that are recorded in a historical book that was written down by men who spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us, so that the Bible written by men is God's inerrant word. It is truth, and it's not just truth for the original audience, but it is truth for us today. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 15 to 17, uh, Paul speaks to Timothy these familiar words. Uh, he speaks about the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, he says, is God-breathed. Right? All scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, for correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Another passage where we see Paul's thinking about the past and the present. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, as he reflects upon Israel's wilderness wanderings, he writes these words. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These things happened to them, and they were written down for us. In the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 4, he's discussing how Jesus' life is a model for us all. And he quotes from Psalm 69, and then he writes this, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I've just given you three different passages where Paul connects the past, the past to the present. But even in our text that we've read this morning, we see the same emphasis, don't we? In verses 23 and 24, Abraham, the model sinner justified by grace alone through faith alone. Paul tells us in this chapter that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But look at verses 23 and 24. Paul says that these words from Genesis chapter 15, verse 26, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And so here in this text, what Paul is doing is, is looking back on God's promises to Abraham. And he's looking back on Abraham's faith in those promises. And he is making application to us who live on this side of the cross, who hear the gospel promises of God and Jesus Christ. And so the story of Abraham teaches us many things about our salvation. It was written down for us. I want you to see at least three of those things this morning from this passage. First, this Abraham's story teaches us why salvation is through faith and not works. Why it's through faith. Secondly, it teaches us what faith is. And thirdly, it teaches us that we are saved in the same way Abraham was. Let's look at these three things together. First, Abraham's story teaches us why salvation is through faith and not through works. Now, if you've been with us for the last, uh, I guess, six months or so, uh, eight months, uh, you know that in the book of Romans, Paul has been making this point that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the righteousness of God has been manifested through the gospel apart from the law. 
The gospel is that the ungodly are justified. They are declared right with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And now here in Romans 4, Paul has been pointing us to Abraham to prove that justification has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. Whether the work of circumcision, as we saw in verses 9 through 12, or here in verses 13 to 17, any other aspect of law-keeping. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul has particularly his Jewish audience in his sights, but but he's speaking to anyone who would be tempted to, to trust in or to boast in their own obedience to the law of God. And he says, look back at the story of Abraham. He essentially says the same thing that he did with regard to circumcision. Just look at the order of events. Now, he does something similar in this passage, what he does in Galatians chapter 3. And there he's very specific. He tells us that the Mosaic law came 430 years after the promise came to Abraham. So clearly Abraham couldn't have been saved by keeping a law that didn't even exist when he was justified. Now here he's making a similar point. He's saying that when when God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13 and Genesis 15 and made promises to Abraham, there was no law that Abraham had to keep before God would make the promise to him. And the fulfillment of those promises was not due to Abraham's obedience. God said, look, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you uh, the land of Canaan. I'm going to bless you with a seed as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. In you and in your seed, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In reality, you are going to be the heir of the whole world, God essentially is saying to Abraham. As he says in Genesis 15:1, I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. God declared that he would do all of these things for Abraham freely and graciously. And what did Abraham do? He believed God. And faith was counted to him as righteousness, right standing in the presence of God when he believed. But notice that Paul here in these verses doesn't just state that salvation came through faith and not through law. In verses 14 to 17, he gives us three reasons why salvation cannot come through law. It cannot come through obeying God's law, but it must come through faith. What are the reasons? Well, well, real quickly, here they are. First, because law cannot save anyone. Second, so that salvation would rest on grace and grace alone. And third, so that salvation would be guaranteed to anyone who believes. Let's look at these three reasons briefly, the first one a little longer. First, look at verses 14 and 15, what Paul says. He says, for if the adherents of the law, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null, the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul's saying, if you have to keep the law in order to be saved, in order to become an heir, then Houston, we have a problem Right? Because here's, here's the issue. All of this talk of faith will be nullified. All this talk of a, of a promise will be, will be voided. It'll be meaningless. 
Imagine someone wrote you a, a million dollar check and, and you took that check and, and you wrote over your name and over the amount the word void. And then you brought it to the teller and you said, here, I'd like to deposit this check into my account. They would look at you and they'd say, like, this check is null and void. I know some of you don't use checks anymore. You, you, you forget what checks are. And you, we, don't, we don't think about checks much anymore, right? But, but if you brought that null and void check to the teller, they'd say, we, can, we can't deposit this. It's, it's meaningless. It's worthless. It has no value any longer. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, if the promise of, of salvation depends on obedience, then it's null and void. Why? Well, because of what he says in verse 15. The law brings wrath, but, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, Paul's logic in that verse is, is implied, it's condensed, it's a little hard to understand. But what he's essentially saying is this, where there is no law, sure, you don't have any transgression because there was nothing to sin against. Right? But there is law. God has revealed his law. You have transgressed his commands. We're sinners. We can't keep the law perfectly. We don't keep the law perfectly. And therefore, the law only condemns us. It only declares to us judgment and condemnation, never salvation. Right? The law is a mirror. The law is not the barber. It's not the hairstylist. The law just shows you that you are a mess and need a haircut. It doesn't actually do the job. The law of God comes and, and cannot save us. It can only show us how awful we are within and without. It can only bring the condemning verdict of guilty. The law brings wrath. And therefore, Paul is saying, the law can never save. One slip, one failure, and you have broken all the law. Wasn't it funny that Tito Padilla used an illustration from Free Solo right after Christian had done that two weeks previous? And so Elizabeth, all right, we got to go watch this movie, right? And maybe you did the same thing. We got to go watch this documentary. And you watch, and you're like, oh no, there are like a hundred sermon illustrations from this movie, right? I'm not going to use all of them over the next year, but there was just one line that I have to, to use because it fits this text so perfectly, right? They're interviewing Alex Honnold's friend, Tommy Caldwell, who's a professional climber himself. And he says this, he says, I've spent 20 years climbing El Capitan and I'd never do it without a rope. There's no margin for error. Imagine an Olympic gold medal athletic achievement, which we've been watching, right, the last couple of weeks. That if you don't get the gold medal, he says, you're going to die. If you don't get the gold, you're going to die. He said, that's pretty much what free soloing El Cap is like. You have to do it perfectly. And I heard that as I was thinking about this text. You're like, that's what Paul is saying. You have to do it perfectly, but you don't. You can't. And therefore, you are doomed if you think that salvation comes through law-keeping. And so what does he say? He goes on in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. You see, it's not just that salvation must be through faith and not works, because works cannot save, the law cannot save. But it's also that salvation must be through faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and grace alone. Salvation is by grace. God's unmerited favor. Unearned, undeserved, unowed. God's promise is a free gift, a gratuitous gift. And faith, far from putting God in our debt, Faith receives his gift with open hands. 
Paul here is telling us that if salvation were on the basis of works, then, then grace would no longer be grace. He's going to say that explicitly in chapter 11. That's why salvation must be through faith, because the law cannot save. And because grace is grace, to keep grace, grace. But then he says one more thing, doesn't he? Why must salvation be through faith? Because if the promise came through law-keeping, then your life would be a perpetual risk. Your life would be perpetually in the balance. Have you ever, would you ever know if you had done enough? And the answer is no, you wouldn't. What if you did great today, but you messed up tomorrow? So Paul says that it depends on faith so that the promise may be guaranteed to all his offspring. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. If you believe in Jesus Christ this day, your salvation is guaranteed. But if you're living as if salvation comes through obedience to the law, then you'll be feared with filled with fear, filled with a, a sense of, of anxiety and, and, and foreboding and dread and hopelessness in your relationship with God. Why? Because you'll never know if you've done enough. You'll never know if you might slip and fall off the rock face tomorrow. But the gospel comes and says salvation is by faith so that it will be guaranteed to everyone who shares the faith of Abraham. Whether Jew or Gentile, God has made him, says Genesis 17, 5, the father of many nations. And so everyone who believes from whatever nation, from whatever nationality, from whatever ethnicity, from whatever social background, whether you've kept the law or not, whether you even know that there is a law, if you are trusting and believing, then you will be justified by that faith even as Abraham was. So that's why faith must be the way of salvation and not law-keeping. But what is faith? What's the second thing that Paul wants to show us from the story of Abraham? What is faith? Well, he, he tells us in verses 17 to 22. In this passage, he looks back on Abraham's experience of believing God's promises. In verse 18, you notice that that Paul reminds us of Genesis 15, verse 5, when, when God took Abraham outside and told him to look up towards the heavens. And he says, count the stars if you are able. And he says, so shall your descendants be. Abraham, you have no children, but you will have as many children as there are stars in the sky, or as we read in Genesis 22, as there are grains of sand on the seashore. Later, you remember in Genesis 17 that God changes his name from Abram to Abraham and he promises him that he would be the father of many nations. And then look what Paul writes there in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope. Now, why does Paul say against hope? Well, what Paul is saying is, look, Abraham wasn't an idiot. Abraham didn't close his eyes to reality or stick his head in the sand. He, he knew that the circumstances in which he found himself were such that he should have abandoned all hope. Right? As sometimes we say about our, our sports stadiums, it was a place where dreams come to die, right? This is what Abraham was dealing with. He, he knew how old he was, 100 years old. 
And so you see it there in verse 19. He considered his own body, which was as good as dead. He considered the barrenness, literally the deadness of 90-year-old Sarah's womb. And so when God tells him there in Genesis 17 that he's going to have a baby, but it's actually going to come through Sarah, the text tells us he fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then he said to God, oh, that Ishmael, who I had when I was 86, you remember Ishmael, he's 13 now, Lord. Oh, that he might live before you as the child of promise. Abraham knew that 100-year-old and 90-year-olds can't make babies. Right? I Googled it. Google says that the oldest you know, living sort of couple that's had a baby is a 75-year-old and a 70-year-old last year in India through in vitro fertilization. That's what Google says, right? Abraham knew, like, yeah, 190-year-old, like, it ain't happening. But what does Paul tell us? Against that hope, in the face of, of everything that he saw with his eyes, everything that he felt within his own body, against all evidence to the contrary— Abraham believed God's promise in hope. Look at what it says there. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So what is faith? Faith is not an irrational leap right, into the great unknown. Faith is not sort of blind, whistling in the dark, acting like nothing is wrong. No, faith is taking God at his word. Faith is a reasonable, relying upon the word of one who is utterly reliable. Faith is counting on the faithfulness of one who is absolutely faithful. Faith is trusting the promises of one who is completely trustworthy. It's believing the one who is always and only believable. Faith is giving glory to God, as Paul puts it. God, the one who is able, who is willing to do everything that he says he will do. For Abraham knew that behind the promises was the character and the ability of the one who had made those promises. Nothing was too difficult for him. Look back at verse 17. The God in whom Abraham believed was the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Right? God could give life to Abraham's dead body. He could give life to Sarah's dead womb. Abraham knew that God was able to do what he had promised with regard to giving him and Sarah a son, with regard to giving him an offspring as numerous as the, the stars in the sand, with regard to making him the father of many nations, both physically and spiritually, of making him a blessing to the whole earth, of, of essentially making him the heir of the world. And so Abraham could take all the evidence that he saw with his senses and put it on one side of the scale, and he could take the promises of God, the word of God, and put it on this side of the scale. And there was no contest as to which one was heavier, which one was weightier. Humanly speaking, he had no hope. But he had God on his side. He had the word of God on his side. And so he had all the hope that he needed. He believed God. And God counted his faith as righteousness. So what about you? 
What do you look at and, and you say, ah, this doesn't make sense. I just can't understand. I can't grasp it in my brain. I can't figure it out. It just looks so ridiculous and so crazy. But are you a son, a daughter of, of Abraham? Do you believe in Abraham's God? Do you believe the word of Abraham's God? Do you take God at his word? Are you fully convinced that he is able to do all that he has promised? See, Paul wants us to see what faith is from the life of Abraham. Because the God of Abraham is also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the last thing that Abraham's story teaches us about salvation. Not just why salvation must be through faith and not law-keeping. Not just what faith is but thirdly, that we are saved in the same way Abraham was. Again, look at verse 23 and following. After Paul says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, he says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Abraham's story was not some individual story, but it's universally true for anyone and everyone who comes to God just like Abraham did through faith in the word of the God of Abraham. It will be counted to us who believe in him. But now look at the way Paul continues that old phrase. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Think about that. Just as Abraham was justified by believing in the God who brings life from the dead, so we believe in a God who brought life from the dead, who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. What Abraham looked forward to, you remember Jesus in John 8 says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What Abraham looked forward to, we know in its accomplishment. The God who made promises to Abraham is the God who has sent his son into the world as the fulfillment of those promises. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He is the one who will be given so that all the nations might be blessed. In Jesus Christ, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life, everlasting hope, everlasting glory, everlasting righteousness. Jesus came into this world in order that he might live a sinless life. And in order that he might die, he was the son, ultimately, who would not be spared the knife that Isaac was spared. He was the son who was delivered up, verse 25 says, for our trespasses. Don't miss the, the passive voice in that verse. He was delivered up. By whom? He was delivered up, as Paul will say, say explicitly in Romans 8, by his heavenly father. His heavenly father, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, willingly gave him up for us to save his elect people from their sins. We believe the word of a God who loves us so much that he was willing to send his son to endure the shame of a Roman cross so that we might have our penalty paid by him, so that we might have our sins taken away, so that Jesus might bear the wrath of God fully in our place and clothe us with a righteousness that will never fade away and give to us the whole world as our inheritance. And how do we know that all that is promised in the gospel will 
come to pass, that it is true and will be true? Well, Paul finishes by saying, Jesus was raised for our justification. The God who delivered up his son for our sins is the God who has raised his son to endless life for our righteousness, for our justification. The resurrection of Jesus vindicates Jesus as the sinless one who did not die for his own sins, who did not deserve to die, but who was dying as a substitute for his people. The the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as a payment for our sins. And therefore we have confidence, confidence that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have this everlasting hope, this everlasting life, this everlasting righteousness, this everlasting glory. We will share in all of his benefits. He is the living Lord and Savior in whom, along with the Father, we place our trust so that he, Jesus, might be our righteousness from God. We walk by faith, like Abraham, and not by sight. I love the way that Calvin puts it at this point. He says this, Let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. Right? We just saw how it was for Abraham. But now listen how Calvin says it is for us. God promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. God declares that he counts us righteous. We are covered with sins. God testifies that he is propitious and kind to us, and yet outward judgments threaten us. What then is to be done? We must, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us so that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. With closed eyes, or maybe we might better say with the blinders on. We see everything that's out there. It's not that we close our eyes to all the the reality that is around us and in us, but we focus solely on the promises of God. And we say, God has promised that I am righteous through faith in spite of my sin. God has promised that he is propitious and kind to me, that he loves me in spite of the, the afflictions and the trials that he is leading me through. God has promised that I will live forever, even though within myself I feel death working day by day. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And so through faith, we are justified. So through faith, Jesus gives us resurrection life so that with Abraham, we too will inherit the world. You remember the great lines In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, when it speaks of Abraham and his faith, and it says this, By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why? For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He desires a better country, the author of the Hebrews says. That is a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called his God, for he has prepared a city for him. You see, Abraham was looking not merely for the land of Canaan, but for the city that is to come, the heavenly city. He was looking for the glorious promises of God that he would be the heir of the whole world. And we too have the same city promised to us in Jesus Christ. That city that one day will come down from heaven 
to her. And so we too must lay hold of the promises of God, must take God at his word and hope. Let us believe against hope, walking by faith and not by sight, knowing that we have been forgiven. We have been counted righteous if we believe in Jesus Christ. And therefore, these momentary light afflictions, we know, are producing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. We look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We believe the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, that whoever believes is counted righteous through faith. May God make it so. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to him. Put your trust and your faith in him and walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you for the way that Abraham's story continues to live on for us. We are his sons and daughters through faith in Jesus. And therefore, Lord, we can learn from our great, 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 great grandfather in the faith how to believe. We can learn that salvation is through faith and not works. We can learn that it is by faith alone that we are counted righteousness through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us to believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, we thank you for the glorious gospel that is true no matter how we feel, that is true no matter what our circumstances are like, that is true for us if we believe in Jesus. So, Lord, give us grace, we pray, to walk by faith and not by sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.